light, most of us have no appreciation of the profound healing benefits it has. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and I'm joined today by James Carroll, who is an expert in light as therapy, or something we call, or is called, photobiomodulation. And, and one of James' ambitious goals is to have photobiomodulation as the first-line therapy for 100 diseases in 100 countries by the time he's 100 years old, which is about 45, 45 years, years from yeah. now. So that's a very ambitious goal, and we'll talk about some of the diseases uh, that is, that's already is on its well on its way and some of the ones he hopes it will be too. And I'm here in Orlando just having completed one of his one-day training uh, events, and um, we're really excited to share this information with you. So welcome, and thank you for, for joining us today, James. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So uh, uh, you really have acquired, you've been doing this now for three decades? Yes, 30 years. 30 years, 30 years. I mean, this is the beauty of, of tapping into someone who's really been committed to this field and, and acquiring all this information and then translating the information into practical therapeutic rec, uh, insights. So we're gonna share some of that information with you today, some of the highlights of what I learned in this full day event. But first, can you tell us what catalyzed your desire to focus in this area 30 years ago? Uh, at that time in my life, in 1987, 86, 87, I had a business with a friend which was to raise, uh, for raising government grant money. So we mm -hmm. sold government grant information and government grant consultancy. One of our clients was a laser company, and it was uh, a kind of grant which requires collaboration with academic institutions. Mm -hmm. So one of them was uh, the Guy's Hospital in London, Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the, uh, the tissue repair research unit there. And so we helped them raise uh, a million pounds to work with them. And in the process, I got to meet Mary Dyson, who's one of the four main editors of Grey's Anatomy. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is also the head of tissue repair research at Guy's. So I got to see some of the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And when I found out, when I could see, A, the work they were doing with cells, and then with small animals in rodent studies, and then we got to see, at those days, what wasn't controlled clinical trials, it was just single cases, then uh, I thought, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, this is going to be in every corner of every department of every hospital in the whole world within the next five years, I thought. And I've got mm -hmm. to give up what I'm doing, and I've got to do this. Mm -hmm. So I went to work with a laser company that mm -hmm. was supplying the products for her research. That's how I got into it. Okay, and at the time, light therapy really consisted of lasers because LEDs really weren't available at that So maybe you can tell us about the transition or the development of the technology over time, because you've been in it from the beginning. Uh, there were uh, LEDs around at the time, but um, most people in this field were actually using lasers, as you said. Uh, what's changed? In those days, I remember the first lasers that we were using, I think they were 15 milliwatts, mm -hmm. and then they kind of made it to 25, and then to 30, and then we got to 50, and whoa, we got to 100 milliwatts, and that felt like an awful lot. And we finally got to 200 milliwatts, and then the, these dyes were getting stronger. I mean, these days, um, it's quite common to see 30 watt uh, laser diodes around. So, 30 watt for yes, one diode? Yes, it's wow. quite possible. So, yeah. so, um, it's, that's the tr so that's the technology moving forward, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean to say that's what you need. Mm -hmm. That's just laser diodes have moved along mm -hmm. and what you can do now. And the cost has come down. And the cost has come down, and so you could take a high-powered laser, but you then diffuse it, so you mm -hmm. wouldn't want all that power in a small spot. Sure. So you can cover a larger area. Yeah, that's and the, the cost has come down so we can make clusters of lasers as well. Sure. That's what we're doing it. 
You know, that, that's the beauty is that you don't really need a lot. There's a sweet spot, this Goldilocks dose that yeah. seems to work really effectively. And in fact, if you use too much, even though it's simple light, it can mm. be counterproductive. Yes. So we want to be somewhere, I mean, cells seem to like somewhere in the range of uh, five to up to 50 milliwatts per centimeter squared as a density of light. You can use less, you can use more, but really if you want to have successful in vitro studies, that's where you need to be. Similar doses seem to work in superficial wound healing and inflammation. Uh, and unless you're going for deeper targets, that's usually enough. And then you apply it for something like a minute and you're going to get the it's results. A minute, which is just extraordinary. It's mm. just one minute is all you require. So let, let's go back into the history a bit because I think it's important in that you still can do uh, photobiomodulation, which seems to be the most precise research term at this point. Yes, it's the but, new term that's been carefully, yeah. After a lot of discussion mm -hmm. with folks from Harvard and the Navy and from NIH, and we get together and we finally adopted this term. I like it. It makes sense. But the older terms and, mm. and many much of the research is, is around that area is LLLT. Mm -hmm. uh, that would... came in around about the early 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, even though actually photobiomodulation was first used, I got evidence in published research that goes back to 93 with that mm -hmm. word being used. So. So, but that's, that's a new term now. Now there's also some, so most of the research and the devices actually revolve around LEDs, not so much lasers. Would I that be true? I suppose so now, yes. Yeah. It has, the, the balance has tipped, has tipped that way, yes. Yeah. yes. And there's a lot of confusion, because these are obviously LED lasers. Uh, and did you, uh, you said LED lasers. Did you, the LEDs are LEDs and lasers are lasers. And okay, I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. I said. So obviously these are LED lights. Yes. And I've interviewed Dr. Alexander Wunsch, who's a photobiologist from Germany, and mm -hmm. we've done a whole interview on the dangers of LED lighting. Mm -hmm. But I just want to distinguish that because from a lot of people. the blue end of the spectrum. The, right, because that's. That's LED lights for illumination as a replacement for the old incandescent bulbs, but it's not the LED lasers. Particularly in, in the, it's not, I don't know if it's LEDs, but they put these lamps, these bulbs, I don't know what, are those xenon bulbs, whatever it is that they're putting in. Halogens? German halogens, but there's some very blue light coming oh, xenon. out of motor cars. Okay. Xenon. Oh, yeah. Right, so yes, I know, I mean, I know the, the uh, chairman of the um, sort of laser safety committee. Mm -hmm. The 60825 laser committee, and they were very concerned when those started coming out for exactly the reasons I think you are, because what the potential damage is for the eye, yeah, for oncoming drivers. And uh, it's not only the incan the, the LED lights in your home, but when you're driving yes. at night, you are staring at light yes. after light after light, especially and your, if in a highway. And your pupils are highly dilated. Yeah, so you're taking in more than you would normally. Yeah, so that's why I really only, I, it may be illegal, but I only drive with lights, with, with sunglasses on. I wear reverse sunglasses, yes. <laughs> these blue blocking glasses. Yeah, why not? Yeah, so anyway, but anyway, the, 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 that's a bit of a tangent. The important point is that the LEDs that we're using for therapy, photobiomodulation, mm. yeah. are not the ones for light. Not that these end are, of the spectrum. These are very, actually boils down to primarily two frequencies, and maybe we can touch on that, the, mm. the 660 and the 810 or 850. Yes, so most of the products in these days are in the sort of uh, 600 to 1,000 nanometer range. Mm -hmm. uh, there seems to be a gap around the 700s. Mm -hmm. um, some debate about whether or not the 720 nanometers, it's, there's some evidence that it doesn't make any ATP, for example. Um, there are plenty of studies that show in the lab it doesn't do anything, but I have seen the old paper that says it does, and I think mm -hmm. once you see some evidence that it does, it, I don't know, it just... 
again, as, as we spoke earlier, I think the more you know, the more you realize you don't yes. know. And you, you have all this conflicting information. And, Absolutely. Uh, so. but, but there's still lots of solid evidence, research mm. and anecdotal testimonials that yeah. have beyond profound benefits. Right. In randomized so, controlled clinical trials, right. there's around about 500 mm -hmm. randomized controlled clinical trials in humans mm -hmm. and about 4,000 laboratory studies mm -hmm. and about 30 new papers coming out every month in this field. Yeah. There is plenty of evidence. And you've got them all indexed on your software. Yeah, you saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really unique. Yeah. So, but the, the key thing, why don't you review with us the molecular mechanism, at least the suspected molecular mechanism, of mm. how shining light in these frequencies can have so much profound clinical benefits. And then we'll go review some of the benefits that, that you've been seeing and, and that are uh, uh, documented in some of the studies you referenced. Right. Well, first caveat mm -hmm. for my academic friends who might be watching this, are mm -hmm. the things like, James has given the one story that, of course, everybody kind of knows about, but doesn't he realize there's a lot of other potential mechanisms that we're mm -hmm. looking at? So there are. Mm -hmm. But the one that has the most, where there's been the most effort mm -hmm. put into it and where it explains most of the effects that we're seeing clinically is the cytochrome C oxidase story. So mm -hmm. cytochrome C oxidase is the terminal enzyme of the electron transport chain in mitochondria. So um, I was going to say it's well known, but it is known that nitric oxide is a regulator of ATP production. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give you the nitric oxide cytochrome C oxidase ATP story. Mm -hmm. So um, normally um, when, we, um, you know, when we breathe in air, the oxygen in our lungs gets transferred or taken up by uh, hemoglobin, and hemoglobin is carried around the body by red blood cells, and the red blood cells basically deliver the oxygen to every single cell in the body. And when we eat food, uh, we break it down into glucose and fats and glycogen, and that glucose is delivered to every single cell in the body, uh, and it's transferred across the cell membrane, uh, and the, the, uh, the glucose is then <coughs> broken down uh, through glycolysis to a little bit of ATP and something called pyruvate, and then micro, uh, mitochondria take the, the pyruvate and break it down further. You have the Krebs cycle, breaks it down to little bit of ATP uh, down to FADH and NADH, and then they, they are combined with oxygen in the electron transport chain to make lots of hydrogen ions that drive ATP synthase. I'm sure I've lost a lot of the audience already, so I think we'll give a summary of it at the end, so stay with the story. For those who understand it, stay, you're, you're enjoying it. Those who don't, stick around. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so the terminal end on the electron transport chain is nor cytochrome C oxidase is normally taking up NADH, combining it with oxygen, and allowing two more electrons to be transferred from the electron transport chain. And that pumps a lot of hydrogen ions through to drive ATP synthase mm -hmm. to, to make ATP, which is a good process, works successfully until we get sick, injured or stressed, or just generally as we get old, uh, something starts to kind of go wrong. Our mitochondria start to make too much of a molecule called nitric oxide. Uh, now, a lot of people have heard of nitric oxide and think of it as a good thing because it is important for signaling in all sorts of regions of the body, all sorts of chemical processes. But in mitochondria, it's known to be a regulator of ATP. And you can look up the work of Salvador Moncada. It goes back to the 1960s. Can you spell this last name? Salvador, as in the country. Sure. Moncada, M-O-N-C-A-D-A. -A. Okay. So Salvador Moncada. So you can look his work up. So he's identified nitric oxide as a regulator of ATP production. He also identifies how this also leads to the next problem. When we make too much of it for too long, 
Uh, this is when you start developing free radicals. So normally when we're, <clears throat> when we, when we're sorry, when we're, getting, when we're sick, when we're injured, when we're stressed, our mitochondria, possibly cytochrome C oxidase itself is actually making nitric oxide. It binds preferentially to cytochrome C oxidase and it stops the consumption of oxygen. So you stop making the hydrogen ions that drive ATP synthase which isn't the biggest problem. The real problem is you've now, you've now got constipated electron transport chain because the last two electrons can't be passed from cytochrome C to cytochrome oxidase. And this backlog of electrons down the electron transport chain lead to the production of superoxide and hydrogen peroxide. Excess oxidation. Yes. Yeah. And they leak out of mitochondria into the cell and start the processes of inflammation and cell death. Well, some leaks out, but it depends on the, the exact free radical, but most of them are stick in the mitochondria and, right. and screw up the mitochondria and on steroids. Too. And it causes premature aging of the mitochondria, senescent mitochondria. So the wonderful thing seems to be is that light and the kind of wavelengths we're using at the mm -hmm. kind of intensities we're using seem to basically break the bond between nitric oxide and cytochrome C oxidase. It's basically, the light's flushing out the nitric oxide from cytochrome C oxidase. And so now you can start consuming oxygen again, combining with NADH and electrons now passing uh, from cytochrome C to cytochrome oxidase again. And you start making ATP and the cause of the uh, constipated electron transport chain has gone away, and therefore you stop making too many of these free radicals that are the reactive oxygen species that lead to inflammation and cell death. Well, well thank you for explaining that, because <laughs> this is a really powerful mechanism, and you know, it really describes one of the uh, ways that we can remediate against excess oxidative damage mm. and free, secondary to free radicals, of course. So the shorter version of yeah. all of that is basically when we put light of the right wavelength and intensity into people for the right amount of time, the right intervals, then basically we tip the balance where you know we're under a stressed cellular situation, particularly stressed inflammatory cells, you tend to be your body or your cells tend to be low in ATP, high in oxidative stress. And this light basically tips the balance in favor of more ATP and less oxidative stress. And under those circumstances, people get better more quickly. Yeah. So it's a it's a very powerful tool and it aligns really well with the two uh, aspects of oxidative stress that I've been talking about, but wrote a book about one of them, which is burning fat for, as your primary fuel, because when you burn sugar as your primary fuel, you're going to create about 30% more oxidative damage than burning fat. So combining that with also avoiding EMS, because EMS work the same way. They increase oxidative stress. That's how they cause their damage. In fact, cause more oxidative damage than ionizing radiation, even though the, the EMF typically doesn't have the energy in the wavelengths because they're, they're not gamma rays or ionizing radiation, they, uh, they can still cause more damage than ionizing radiation. So when you combine EMF remediation efforts along with optimizing your fuel intake with photobiomodulation, you, you've got a triple win and you can really optimize mitochondrial function, which is the, the end game. And it's got me thinking now, because you remember, I just explained the uh, the stress cell scenario, mm -hmm. but as we also did in the training course today, uh, we did the, the prophylactic effects of light. Mm -hmm. So this treatment is also a little bit stressful, and you put it into healthy cells, you do get a little burst of ROS anyway. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to, uh, to trigger some of the transcription factors in the cell that are involved in defensive, you know, defensive mechanisms. And as we've seen from either you know, putting uh, LPS into cell cultures or exposing tissues to, well, gamma radiation in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in cancer treatments, that the tissues seem to survive it better. Yeah. yeah. So actually, you can treat healthy cells, and then maybe they're going to be 
better able to handle the EMF you've been talking about. Well, I, I would agree with that, except take off the board, maybe. I think, okay. that, I think the evidence is pretty strong to show that it does. Yeah. And I, I have personal experience with that. I, uh, you make a very interesting product called the Thor bed, which is really so high. The Novothor. It's so, no, I'm sorry, the Novothor, I'm sorry. Uh, the Novothor. And, um, have incredible benefits, you know, and I've used a less expensive version called the Juve, but I have treated myself prophylactically before I would go and do an intense uh, workout at the gym, to really stressing my hamstrings and doing walking lunges with 50 or 60 pound dumbbells. And normally when I would do that, I, would, I couldn't sit down or go to the toilet, mm. you know, without great pain. Mm. But when I pre-treat with mm. photobiomodulation, there's like no pain. It's just the most amazing thing. Mm. And as you've seen, uh, the uh, Nike Oregon Project. Yeah, that's what I was saying. That was the next. Yeah, the, go ahead. Talk about well, that. Because I never knew that the, the Olympic team was using your device yeah, that's right. before Rio Olympics. And if I understand it right, they say they got more medals this year than any other previ any previous Olympics from those, from those teams. Yeah. And of course, Justin Gatlin went and beat Hussein Bolt a couple of weekends ago. Yeah, yeah. As well. Well, Hussein was a retiring too. Yeah, he was slaying down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's still yeah. a quite testimony. He didn't run his fastest race, that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but uh, there's a, uh, most of the track team was using it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and why don't you talk about the Nike project? Or the Oregon project, sorry. The Nike Oregon project. Well, I mean, controversially as, as he is, I mean, Alberto Salazar, mm -hmm. uh, Alberto Salazar, um, I mean, he's always been trying to pioneer other ways of getting people to train harder mm -hmm. and longer and recover faster. And as he says, you know, re recovery, as he says, on a scale of 1 to 10, recovery is a 10. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's as important as the training itself, he says. It's, it's critical to their success as a team. I couldn't agree and, more. And he uh, feels that this is now sort of the best therapy he's ever used for recovery. And what type of protocols are they using? Obviously, they're doing pre-workout treatments and, and posts, or what's, mm. what's a typical strategy that at least the elite well, they, track athletes are using? What he says now is he says he requires the team to use it at least three times a week, but actually they're using it every day uh, without being asked. It's things like doing cryotherapy, which they've also used in the past, and, but the common get is that you know, people don't enjoy it as much getting into the cryotherapy machine as they do getting to the light, but it's something they look forward to yeah. and enjoy. And is it pre or is it post? Because or is it both? It, well, it, well, they're using it every day now. So what, you know, you've used it after run, but of course you've just used it before you have a run the next day. So it's, it's kind of all the time now. It's part of the routine. And when I interviewed Michael Hamblin mm. about photobiomodulation, he anecdotally mentioned at the end of his interview that some people were using it to treat kidney failure and actually That's right. were causing them to avoid needing a transplant because mm -hmm. they were on dialysis and they got off dialysis. Mm -hmm. So I asked you that question today and why don't you exp uh, explain well, what, you, what you answered in the, in the presentation. I don't know how many people are doing it. I know one person that's yeah. been doing it. So uh, it's a veterinarian who's been treating kidney disease for some time now. Uh, he's been, I, I understand that when you get a diagnosis in a cat uh, for kidney disease, then pretty much <clears throat> Get what he said. It's like it's like ninety percent gone already. There's only ten percent of function left. It's too late. And it's it's one of the most common causes of death it is. in cats. In elderly cats, it's one of the most common causes. And uh, these cats have then got maybe a few months to live, maybe six, occasionally eight. There's been a, a review of the longevity of cats after a diagnosis, and like <clears throat> eight months is about as long as it gets. Mm -hmm. And he's got cats living for many years after diagnosis now, coming for routine treatment to the kidneys. Yeah. And he's got one friend 
who's on dialysis, who was leading a, leading a miserable life, he's able to reduce the amount of times he needs to go for dialysis, and he's going on holiday. And he said he's got his life back. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, there's like no side effects. Mm. For, virtually none. I mean, yeah. there's a few. Maybe you can discuss those now when we forego some of the other clinical indications because there's essentially no size. But there's no, almost no downside except for the time and effort to go get the treatment. You just, and if you get a home unit, it's real easy to use. Mm. So some uh, conditions do feel worse before they feel better. Yeah. Mostly not, but sometimes it happens. So that you could call a side effect. Mm -hmm. But in um, when we use systematic reviews of the literature of uh, musculoskeletal pain, uh, usually find actually that uh, there is few side effects, they report few side effects and, no, and the same number of side effects in placebo group as well as the active group, which mm -hmm. basically tells you it's not a side effect at all. Right. So one of the other benefits of the photobiomodulation is in exercise training. Yeah. It seems to increase strength training. In your presentation today you yes. showed uh, weight trainers who were having significant personal yes. improvements for using this therapy, so we may comment on that. Yes, it's not the area where I have the most contact with people from the limited, you know, it's, the people who are in the sales department actually have all the relationships and keep telling me what's going on. But in a way it seems to be you have a more profound effect than it does on running as far as I can tell. For mm -hmm. the runners at Nike Oregon Project, people's ability to, to uh, go beyond their, their competition best scores, their personal bests, personal records, um, just in the, just through normal training. I mm -hmm. mean, just normal training, they are exceeding their competition best scores. Yeah. And where they've been stuck for years at a certain weight, and then they're going way beyond it. So Yeah, and, and so, so I, I do weight training, and, and I can uh, relate personally that you know what you can lift. Mm. I mean, to a few pounds. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious when you have a significant improvement. It's not like it's, it's, a, it's a wild speculation. It's a pretty clear, clear observation. Yes. So, uh, and are there other teams that are exploring this? I mean, you just got them into the 1916 Olympics, or look, or 2016 Olympics, or for 2020, are you looking at having more, more t uh, sports incorporating this, this technology? Well, it's, it, the way our business goes mm -hmm. is people contact us. Okay. So we don't have any, any, have any outreach program for oh, this. So okay. we're not chasing anybody. Okay. We're just responding to inquiries. We've got more inquiries for our handheld products, our desktop products, and our Novothorp product, then we can keep up with. Okay. So uh, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. So we tend to respond to we're responding to demand rather than. So Alberto Salazar contacted you. Yes. Oh, okay. So. Interesting. Yeah, he was a the the coach for Nike, so that's, that's good. Right. Now, the, now getting back to clinical components, some of the other component the therapies that, that is or problems that it's useful for is treating inflammation and edema mm. and burns. So mm. maybe you can discuss that. Uh, there's very little work on burns in terms of uh, scientific work. There's mm -hmm. no randomized controlled clinical trials uh, and there are some small lab studies on it. Uh, but the anecdotal evidence is consistent is, and is, is pain relief, is mm -hmm. uh, rapid and doesn't come back. It's not a temporary kind of pain relief and then the scars heal much better. And anybody who's got uh, a, a, a low-level laser photobiomodulation product, who's tried it on burns will tell you, tell you the same. You, know, you burn your hand on the stove and you treat it, uh, you scold yourself, you treat it. It is amazing, it's consistently amazing. Uh, so it is a disappointment that actually it hasn't moved beyond that and there aren't burns using units using it. And I think if I had more time, if our sales department had more time, they might approach a burns unit. 
for it, but that, uh, that hasn't happened yet. I think the uh, areas where, uh, and I don't know if it's on your list, but um, it's central nervous system disorders as mm -hmm. possibly some of the most exciting areas. I mean, the, I like hard diseases, and the things that get me excited mm -hmm. are topics like multiple sclerosis, like treating traumatic brain injury, the possibility of treating uh, of Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, uh, macular degeneration. So those are the things that get me excited. Yeah, neurodegen neurodegenerative diseases is a category. Yes, yes exactly. So uh, what type of uh, results have you seen of that, at least anecdotal anecdotally at this point? Because there really aren't a lot of trials well, or studies that, that, show, uh, that show this, or study it, I guess. So. Uh, Dry age-related macular degeneration has been, as quite a few published papers now, I'd say a few, I mean literally a few, three or four uh, papers. Um, so I'm a co-founder of uh, Lumithera, which is another light therapy company, and it's, uh, we developed a device specifically for treating diseases of the eye, and our first target has been dry AMD, which is the uh, leading cause of blindness in the developed world. Mm -hmm. uh, and Nothing works, uh, nothing proven to be effective on treating dry AMD. It affects people in late age, probably in their 70s and upwards usually. I mean, can start in the 50s. And there's no proven effective treatment. And these people just, once they've got a diagnosis, will go blind within 10 years. And they mm -hmm. don't learn to use a white stick at that age, and they don't learn to read Braille, and they just lose independent living. And mm. uh, our first uh, study showed in 129 patients uh, there were up to three lines of improvement on the Snellen eye chart that you see in an ophthalmologist. Uh, nothing else does that. Mm -hmm. And then a more, a more recent study, without a, again without a control group, uh, on 41 eyes we did optical coherence tomography as well and showed that the drusions, which are the deposits in the back of the eye that are the hallmark of this disease, are receding. And we've just finished a randomized controlled clinical trial in, uh, with uh, tr someone at Toronto University uh, and we're waiting, we've just done the three-month follow-up, and we'll be actually able to have a look at the data because the codes for the randomization for placebo and active group are still a secret, and I would love to be telling you today what the results are, and you may have to wait another week for that, but we're optimistic that we're going to have the first randomized controlled clinical trial, and that will lead to this being, uh, potentially being the first line of treatment for dry, age-related macular, macular degeneration, for which nothing else works. Yeah, and I'm sure it depends upon the state at which they start the therapy. So if, if they were advanced and already had mm. a level of if blindness, it's very it's not, late stage, it they're not going to reverse it. But, mm, if, no. but if it's at the beginning, can they restore normal vision? I guess so. Um, right. Ophthalmology is not my strength, but yeah. I mean, the earlier you get anything, of yeah. course, in degenerative diseases, then, then absolutely. And I think this is going to be the first real foot in the door for uh, photobiomodulation. Uh, because I think once we get this one cleared uh, for for treatment, and it becomes standard care, it's, you know, it becomes the first line treatment for AMD. Then I think it makes it easier for the next one. And there's the, probably the next one's going to be oral mucositis, which is a side effect from chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And with 31 randomised controlled clinical trials already in this field, and with there's a there's an NIH funded study we're doing with Harvard at the moment. It's going to go out to probably a 15 centre clinical trial next year. Our National Health Service in the UK has funded a 10 centre clinical trial, which is in progress at the moment. With that kind of support and funding from governments, I think that's going to uh, it's going to ensure that we get uh, a second. Uh, you know, option for a second pathology uh, as part of 
standard care, you know, first-line treatment, and that will be two, and then we've got to start working on a third one. And it's going to, I just hope it's going to get easier each time we, we, we hit a home run with a, with a disease. And so age-related uh, age macular degeneration, oral mucositis, and then there's a long list after that. Okay. Um, You'll be well on your way to 100. Your Thor, Novathor bed isn't cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, it's over $100,000. $120,000 for the standard size, $140,000 for the extra long Extra one. large. And yes. you would need it because a lot of professional athletes are using it, such as NBA and yes. NFLs. And so you got some big players there, so they may need the extra long That's one. right. And of course, Tony Robbins as well. No, he's Tony a, Robbins. He's 6'6 six, six or 6'7. Six, he's, he's big. Yes. <laughs> yes, big he's got man. two. Yeah. So, uh, but you also have other units that aren't as expensive that are, are, are pretty good value. Mm. They're uh, the, d the desktop units that right. provide very similar therapy. It's not whole body, no. it's a totally different situation. I actually like them better because when I did the measurements on the Novathor, they actually had kind of high, relatively high magnetic fields, which mm. was concerned me, but that's not present on the desktop unit. And, no. and local treatment, you can get a lot, all of the diseases that we were talking about or we'll talk about you can treat with the desktop unit and you know, pre preventing kidney disease or treating kidney disease and burns and you know, a lot of the other focal things. So talk a little bit about your desktop unit. Well, it's a console with a couple of sockets that we can plug different accessories into. So we have intraoral laser probes for analgesia. We have intraoral probes for healing. Mm -hmm. We have extraoral probes for treating obviously anywhere else except the oral cavity. Mm -hmm. So we've got a probe specifically for analgesia. We've got a probe specifically for myofascial trigger points. We've got a probe specifically for superficial healing, so superficial injuries and, and wounds. So we have different probes you can plug in. I think uh, we've got about a dozen different probes now. We've now got a, uh, a treatment helmet, mm -hmm. which is not uh, for sale. It's, in, it's only up for- In beta. It's for, yes, it's in beta. <laughs> it's, uh, so we've got a contract with the VA to uh, make this helmet for they're going to do research on traumatic brain injury yeah. and Alzheimer's, but that plugs straight into it. Oh, it plugs into the tabletop unit? Yes, it does. Oh, I did not know. So you need the tabletop unit for the helmet to work? Yeah, that's right. Okay, did not so know that. So that delivers uh, about 21 watts of LED light. Wow. If it's all, all the section, we've got different switches all over the helmet, which allow you to target specific lobes. Mm -hmm. At least this is what they believe. Mm -hmm. So this is what they're going to be researching. So 21 watts if you have them all turned on. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got extra large cluster probes in the pipeline now, which allows us to deliver 16 watts worth of laser over to a large area to induce analgesia. Mm -hmm. So we're just inventing more and more accessories. We're having probes that we're going to develop for like an intraoral cluster probe. You put the probe inside your mouth and mm -hmm. it treats the whole oral cavity wow. in all directions. We've been asked to develop vaginal treatment probes and rectal treatment probes. What would as the well. vaginal treatment what would that be targeted for, the therapies? Well, I've the what the doctor who I met said is he believes for whatever reason that it would treat uh, vaginal dryness mm. so in uh, sort of postmenopausal women mm. so we'll find out what about dry eyes what if I don't know of any research on it okay um, harmless to try yeah it wouldn't hurt and one of the things that really impressed me was how little therapy you actually need. Mm. I mean, literally, the treatment doses are like 30 seconds to a minute, but yes. you've got to get the dose right. Yeah. Once you have the dose right and know where to treat it in multiple areas mm. according to your protocol, you're going to get phenomenal results. So even though you have the equipment, if you don't know how to use it, it's not going to work. Yes. So 30 seconds to a minute, though we do treat a lot of points. Yeah. You know, you're usually more likely going to spend 10, maybe 15 minutes. Oh, with whole somebody. 15 minutes. So, yes. So, uh, 
It's, uh, yeah, but per point, if you take on the, the full four-step treatment method, by the time you've treated the pathology, possibly in multiple places, sure. by the time you treated the lymphatics, and by the time you treated multiple points for the nerves, yeah. and done lots of trigger points, you've done, you've done 10 to 15 Yeah, minutes. and one of the demonstrations you typically do in your training seminars, and you did in the one that we attended mm. today, is to ask the audience who has a neck problem, because yes. that you can see the results right away, yes. and, and usually the longer, more chronic it is, the more rapidly the resolution. And of course, we found someone who did, and is, is in most audiences, and he had pretty significant improvement Yes. after 10 minutes of treatment. And so something else I explained in the course is actually how fast to expect results. Yeah. So one of the things I didn't ask for is who has a wound they'd like to heal, yeah. because it's not going to instantly heal. So Different, you can expect different things to happen at different rates. Analgesia and trigger points is within a minute. Mm -hmm. you, get, you get results, and that's why it's a nice demonstration to do, because you finish treating somebody, and suddenly their ability to turn their head has improved enormously with their neck pain. Uh, Anti-inflammatory effects, they're delayed for about, a, uh, about an hour. And then regenerative effects, you, know, you tend to see those over a period of a day or more. So minutes, hours, days for analgesia, trigger points anti-inflammatory effects maybe an hour and then maybe less but then the uh, regenerative effects you see over a period of a day or more yeah yeah so fascinating and powerful intervention so great job thank you so it's interesting so there's a lot of dental applications and yes. in, in our uh, training seminar today there was a few, there were a few dentists or yes. dental technicians but more dentists than anything else weren't there yeah yeah it was interesting and one dentist described how one of his patients had one of your units and yes. brought it in and wanted to try it and she did not want to use the local anesthesia that he had, he had proposed, and she brought the, his unit in, and he did an extraction, and yes. he was just dumbfounded and couldn't believe that she didn't have any pain. Right, yes, uh, and I've done it myself, because yeah. you saw a video. That's right. I actually had an extraction done myself, uh, so I had a first molar removed from a mandible mm -hmm. uh, under laser analgesia, no anesthetic. Yeah, which is you know, and it did hurt, but yeah. it's tolerable pain. Mm -hmm. So if you know where to treat, and you treat along the nerves, and you treat over the neck, over the cell bodies for the trigeminal ganglion, which are located in the neck, then uh, yes, you can reduce pain, uh, dental pain. And dentists, for, uh, it desensitizes teeth, and children can have fillings and things without any anesthetic now. Mm -hmm. But also, possibly, I find what I find more, I mean, I know the dentists are excited about mm -hmm. that. I'm more excited about things like, um, Burning mouth syndrome. I mean, mm -hmm. I find particularly chronic pain. I mm -hmm. say interesting. I feel that uh, I mean, chronic living with chronic pain, uh, neuropathic pain. You know, things like shingles and postpatric neuralgia and trigeminal neuralgia. Mm -hmm. you know, shingles around the orbit of the eye and in your hair or PHN like that. Uh, you know, trigeminal um, neuralgias, burning mouth syndromes. Uh, living with that. It, you know, people commit suicide sure. when they have diseases like this, and therefore, uh, I, you know, it's a priority for me to work with specialists in oral facial pain, and to develop these therapies. It feels like the most important place to be in many ways mm -hmm. uh, is, is pain. I mean, as you know, as much as business is great on sport, and it's wonderful that we've got you can improve performance and yeah you know yeah. It's, a, it's a it's wonderful business wonderful for business but actually uh, in terms of what gives me the uh, what I find more exciting is when we're actually solving people's chronic pain conditions. yeah that, that's one of the most impressive uh, take-homes that I got from your attending your presentation today which was excellent but is the protocols you developed that mm -hmm. really 
address a very specific process that's used to treat a clinical problem. Yes. So you're addressing the lymphatic drainage, mm. the inflammation, the trigger points, and then if you you know if there's a pain component involved, you can actually go in there and somewhat over-treat it mm -hmm. to numb it out. Yes. Much more therapy than you would do to actually treat the actual injury. Yes. So can you discuss that process? Because I thought it was fascinating. So for example, um, in uh, medicine, if, uh, if a doctor prescribes maybe a, a 30 pills for a disease, they'll tell you how fast to take them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you just hand over a bottle of pills and say, take these 30 pills, uh, they'll be good for you, they'll make you better. You don't know if the patient's gonna have one patient a week uh, for 30 weeks, or if they're gonna swallow them all at once, yeah. which might kill them. Right. You know, so you have, there's a dose rate in medicine, and you'd normally say something like, take three a day, take one every eight hours, you know, for the next 10 days, and these pills will make you better. And so expressing um, dose in terms of like just like four joules per centimeter squared is no better than just handing over saying and taking take these bottle of, take these 30 pills they'll make you better it's no better than that yeah so with our training course I teach what I call a four-step treatment method so and that means that we will target not just treating the, the pathology itself which is a good place to treat for a mm -hmm. lot of things of course for most things but then if there's inflammation and or edema involved, then we want to activate the lymphatic system so that drains that better. Lymph lymphatic system plays a major role in reducing inflammation. Mm -hmm. uh, then we want to be able to treat for induced analgesia, so we want to treat the nervous system. So where most people are, you know, you know it's an aggressive treatment. It's just like a high-intensity, high-dose laser treatment and suppresses um, nerve conduction and reduces. This is for the pain. For pain, and, and usually it's perispinal to the. Yes. So whilst or, or ganglions, many people are using high-intensity lasers over the injury to induce that. But, but actually, that's not a good idea. No, that's because you're at risk. As you saw today, yeah, fifty percent of, of of tendinopathies, for example, clinical trials have failed due to overtreatment. Yeah. Not due to undertreatment. And therefore, inducing analgesia ought to be done somewhere else. And it appears that it works very well. So if I have an injury to my knee, I'll induce analgesia at my spine. Proximal to the injury. Yes, proximal to. So I will treat over L3, and I'll treat segments above and below. I'll mm -hmm. do midline, and I'll do on the transverse process on the affected side. And I'll be a high-intensity, high-dose treatment to induce analgesia for my knee. So we've now done, treated the pathology, we treated the lymphatics, we treated for, uh, for the pain, but I'll treat at the spine for that. Mm -hmm. And then I've probably got some myofascial trigger points as well. So then I'll be treating points around my leg associated, with trigger points associated to my knee pain as well. So that's our four-step treatment method. And of course, something we haven't discussed yet is uh, treatments to tibia and stem cells. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right, stem cell. That was the first time I listened, I neglected to mention that. Yes. Yes. that was, it's fascinating to, to, to know that you can use PBM, photobiomodulation, to improve stem cell production. So working with a group in Israel mm -hmm. that have uh, shown, well, their first round of studies was, was treating a, a rat model of heart attack, so they occlude the coronary artery, they induce a heart attack, uh, and then they used to treat the heart directly in the rat, and then they reduce the amount of scar tissue that forms. Um, but then that was impossible to do for humans because our heart is behind our lungs. So mm -hmm. you've got to go through the ribs, through the lungs, and the heart's very big. You basically can't get enough light there. So the scientist Uri Oron, who discovered this technique, uh, started putting light into bone. He does it through the tibia. He's shown in treating, treating through the tibia of rats uh, that uh, he can mobilize stem cells, and these stem cells uh, will find their way to an injury. 
And so in this particular case, it's an, an ischemic reperfusion injury after a heart attack has been induced, and you have this profound reduction in infarct size in these rats just by treating the tibia. tibia. And you saw how profound mm -hmm. it was in that. And we've done it in pigs, and we've done it in healthy humans, and we've done it in, ca in heart attack patients now in safety studies with no adverse events for these patients. And so we're now raising money to actually do uh, a full-blown clinical trial with a, with a placebo grip. Yeah, and, so, so and that's treating the tibia. So that might become a five-step treatment method mm -hmm. where we actually include at the tibia as a routine part of our treatment plan. Really? Not just the lymphatics, the injury, the nerve and the trigger point, but maybe the tibia and the sternum as well. This is another really? good target. And the reason we choose tibia and sternum is because there's no meat on it. There's no muscle yeah, on it. Yeah. Very easy to get the light in. Right. Most people think, well, why aren't you treating over the, the iliac crest? Sure, sure. It's because we've got too much meat on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the leaner you are, the better it is. Yes, of course. And would the treatment dose be pretty similar? Is it treating the one minute, but a bit somewhere between 5 and 50 milliwatts per square centimeter? Uh, it's going to be a little bit more because it's more than a centimeter deep really okay. for most of these uh, so patients. So we turn it up a bit more. So we are 200. using, um, uh, in, the, in the rodent studies, we're using just a simple 100 milliwatt laser. And in the human studies, we're using a cluster of five 200 milliwatt lasers. Oh. And we're doing multiple points down the tibia. Okay. So that's like a, it's, it's one watt applied in four different places. At the same time, or four different treatments? Four different places. Well, we, we've got some plans for how we might do it all at okay. once. But at the moment, it's yeah. multiple points. Well, it's beautiful. I mean, I just, it was just so fascinating to be mm. uh, attending your presentation to see how involved you are with all this ongoing research. It was just phenomenal. And, uh, one of the, and also, what was really impressive, and I didn't fully appreciate this, is the importance of over-treating, mm. which most people do. Mm. And... The confusion that many people may have if they're exploring this and trying to find it independently verify this through studying the literature, mm. and you're going to get confused. Mm. And, and you had a brilliant presentation on, the, on explaining the optimum dose and, and what that it's a very narrow range and, and expressing your frustration too with how uh, people are, or researchers are not talking about the they're just talking about the total energy delivered yes. when it's the rate of delivery. That's right. And then the, how they do the math wrong. And yeah. they're like 50. And most of the studies that don't show a benefit for PBM yeah. are literally almost always a result of math error. Yes. So why, why don't you explain that? Because it was, it was really a brilliant, brilliant discussion. You summed it up pretty well. Yes. So, uh, so there's researchers over-treating and not getting the results they were hoping mm -hmm. for was one thing. Uh, we've got researchers who are not testing the lasers before they do studies, and those that do test the lasers don't actually measure the beam area correctly, so they are reporting them. It's a difficult subject. It's for mm -hmm. specialists. It's for, you need scientists and or sort of uh, the right kind of mm -hmm. engineer to know how to do this, but people who are not trained in physics, unfortunately, are doing tests on lasers, and, and they're really not qualified and educated in the right way to actually adequately to operate these things. And then they report... And, and when you say lasers, days. it could be LEDs. It could too. be lasers, it could be LEDs. Yeah. Uh, so they're making mistakes in their reporting as well. Sometimes they're just reporting, as you said, the total dose with actually explaining, you know, if you go four joules per centimeter squared, was it a four-watt laser for one second? You know, or, yeah, that could have been, but of course that's yeah. not going to work. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, or was it something else? Was it, uh, um, I don't know, a one milliwatt laser for, I don't know, I've forgotten how many yeah. zeros, it'd be like 40,000 seconds, but well, that might have been four joules per centimeter. Yeah, and to give people an, uh, an analogy they may better yeah. understand, is cooking, uh, 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 
Yes. So explain that how if you were baking a chicken, yeah. how, how, because that's a, another form of energy administration. That's my point. So doing this therapy has got the same principles of cooking in that you have to get the temperature right and then you put the food in the oven for the right amount of time. Right. Uh, and that, you know, your favorite TV chef does not tell you, treat, you know, cook this chicken uh, uh, with one million joules per centimeter squared. Otherwise, that wouldn't tell you what the temperature of the oven is uh, and how long you've got to do it. You should not join those two numbers together in cooking. Yeah. And you shouldn't do it in this therapy either. But yeah. too many therapy, too many, uh, uh, too many scientists yeah. are actually just giving you the one answer. You know, here, use four joules per centimeter square without appreciating that. How fast should you deliver it? The dose rate. Yeah. Uh, yes, and it's. Uh, there's a lot of unreliable evidence. Now, I completely believe you know, the outcomes they got, mm -hmm. but not necessarily for the, for the reasons they... You know, I believe their outcomes, but I don't believe their dose. Mm -hmm. So I'm on a, a long-term rant about that. All right. Well, that, well I appreciate that. The insights were profound. So do you have any other points you'd like to emphasize or review or, or other th uh, items that we haven't discussed? No. No, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you prompted them, of course, I'd love to discuss them, but... Uh, okay. Uh, All right, well, I think those are the most of the major ones. Yes. As you can see, you're just a fountain of wisdom in this area, and it was an enormously great privilege to have the opportunity to listen to you speak for a few hours and really broaden my perspective and understanding about the field, which I'm really uh, passionate about uh, and fascinated with because of its therapeutic potential for healing so many people and having them avoid the drugs and unnecessary and surgery that leads to painless suffering and never really addresses the foundational cause of the problem. Mm. So I want to thank you for all your research that you have done and will be doing because you're really a major pioneer and leader in the field. And I really enjoyed your participation today and you managed to ask more questions than everybody else in the room put together, <laughs> which I enjoyed. Well, so thank you very much for coming. All right. All right.